Thank you, Brother Dave. Thank you, Roger. You know, it, it brings back happy memories for me. 30 years ago when uh, I was coming to know the Lord and what I was listening to on the radio, Scott Wesley Brown and and Keith Green. Keith Green went to be with the Lord that year in 82 and Wayne Watson, Amy Grant, second chapter of Acts. Anybody ever go to a Petra concert? Anybody? <laughs> we got a few, <laughs> few old timers. <laughs> we want to come back now in Ephesians. We're kind of going to do a flyover of uh, Ephesians 4 through 6 now. Uh, one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind, uh, oftentimes I've heard this, I probably taught it this way when I was a younger Christian, that, you know, chapters 1 through 3 is positional truth, and chapter 4 through 6 is practical truth. You know, 1 through 3 is doctrine, and 4 through 6 is lifestyle. Well, that, that's nice, and if that helps you remember it. It's a little bit of an oversimplification, though, and we want to be careful not to mishandle the Scriptures and to oversimplify them because there's doctrine in chapters 4 through 6 as well. There really is a continuity. There's a unity of thought in the mind of the Apostle that works through all six chapters and is very rich. And uh, we talked about it some, the, the whole idea of living to the praise of His glory. I think that's the overarching theme uh, of the letter in these Ephesian Christians, we, we, one of the things we want to do, if we have information in the historical books, the book of Acts, about any of these uh, epistles, the churches these epistles are written to, it's important to look and see that as we study the epistle. In other words, to fit the epistle into the historical period in the book of Acts. And, of course, we have a lot of information about this church in Acts chapter 19. And we're told that this church was totally into the demonic realm. They were totally into the supernatural in the wrong way, in a bad way. And, of course, the temple of, of Diana, the temple of Artemis was there. It's, they've rebuilt it. It's still there. And it's, it's a horrific image that's in there. You know, Diana, it was, it was a horrific image. And, and yet and they were so proud of the fact that, that Zeus, you know, gave Diana to them, and Ephesians was the, 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 the people who were the stewards of that great image. I mean, so confused with error. And you say, wow, they, they were, I'm sure glad we're civilized compared to them, are we? <laughs> it's just as bad today, if not worse. A lot of the people that you work with or go to school with are totally influenced by things that come out of the movie industry or the print industry or the media and, and they really believe a lot of what they are seeing, hearing and reading is truth. So we have the truth here in the Word of God in this book of Ephesians and I trust it's been an encouragement for us to see that God has a plan God had this plan in eternity past. He's working it out in time. The Lord said in Matthew 16, 18, the first reference to the church in the New Testament, He said, I will build whose church? My church. So who's the one building? Jesus Christ. And whose church is it? Jesus Christ's church. My church. Not your church. Not the elder's church. Not the Pope's church. My church. And one of the things that's been on the mind of the Apostle Paul is that he wants the church to know who they are. 
to know that they have a significance, to know they have a purpose, that God had this purpose in mind long before Israel rejected Messiah. In other words, the church wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like the Lord after they crucified Messiah. He said, oh no, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do? No, Ephesians is one of the, the few places we have in the New Testament that tells us he planned the church before he ever revealed Israel. Before he made any prophetic announcements like Genesis 3.15, he had the church in mind. A multi-ethnic, multicultural, unified group of people. A community. A community that cares for itself. That recognizes that the Holy Spirit dwells within them. Recognizes they have the unique privilege an opportunity to participate in the work of God in this world unlike any other people group ever. Because before the church, they couldn't do it under the old covenant like they can under the new covenant. They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They didn't have the understanding of eternal forgiveness of sins and what liberation from guilt and shame in our sinful past means. So Paul wants us to know. God wants us to know. So as we come now to chapter 4, we've already looked at the first few verses. Verses 1 through 16, we could title Christian Maturity. Christian Maturity. And one of the things that is on the heart of the Apostle Paul is to remind, I'm sure he taught these Ephesians all of this truth when he was there teaching in the, in the school of Tyrannus for two years, day and night. But he reminds them in chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. He's already explained why he's in prison a little bit in chapter 3, that he's been in prison for the gospel, particularly, especially, for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what the Jewish people revolted and followed him everywhere he went, right? To Philippi, they revolted. He went into Thessalonica, they revolted. He went into Berea, they revolted. He went into Athens, they revolted. They stirred up riots everywhere he went. They did not want Gentiles to get the truth of Messiah. And so Paul was the one of the personality that was determined under the Spirit of God. But he also had a temperament that he was zealous for the things he believed in. When he was a Pharisee, he was zealous for that, even taking... Christian men and women and dragging them off to prison. But when the Lord changed him, when he was converted, he had a zeal now for God and for the things of God and for the Word of God and for the person of Jesus Christ. Everything was revolutionized in his life. He was turned upside down. And beloved, that should be the case for you and me too. If you're born again here tonight, that should be the case for you and me too. That our lives have been revolutionized, transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, and they're continuing to be. And if that isn't happening on a consistent basis in your life, you need to step back and examine and see where you are relative to the Lord. Because something's wrong. Either you got saved and then you got confused really bad about who you were as a Christian or you weren't ever saved and you've been deceiving yourself for years. That is possible, you know. I met a man a few months ago in another city. He'd been an elder in the church and he wasn't even saved. He didn't get saved till he was in his 40s. But he had been pretending and doing a very good job of it for many years. 
That is possible. And, and he, he told me this at a dinner, right? He, he, he's, I'm, I'm happy to proclaim it. I'm ashamed of this. And I'm ashamed of the churches that didn't recognize this in me and pull me aside and get me straightened out, see? They, they say, oh, man, you know, businessman, making a lot of money, bring him into the church, put him in a high position, all the same old story. The world's view. So Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. That is a strong urging. You could say, I beg you. I'm begging you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. To get it. <laughs> to use modern tolerance, you know, to get it. To get it, what God has done to you and wants to do in you and through you, see. With all lowliness, we looked at these four qualities, lowliness, humility, uh, humility of mind, gentleness, really meekness, that is a teachable spirit, a spirit that wants to make sure others get the credit for things, a spirit that wants to edify others and build them up instead of self. A great characteristic, all of these are characteristics of our Lord Jesus too, right? I am meek and lowly of heart, he says, right? With long-suffering, this sometimes translated patience, but really, macro through me, a patience, our English word kind of falls short of that. It's the idea of being long-tempered. That is, not quick on the trigger. Not quick to accuse. Not quick to retaliate. They crossed me, and I'm going to make sure I get them back only twice as bad. You know, that's how the world thinks. We used to think like that. All of the great Clint Eastwood movies, almost all of them that everybody liked so much, were all revenge was the motive. Something terrible happened to somebody, we, and they draw you in because it's an injustice. And you say, what a terrible injustice. And then he's going to make it right. See, But not with God. Not with God's help. Not under God. He's going to go make it right. And he's going to kill the guy that did something else to someone else. Well, that's not our role. But how many of us fall for that and begin to think like that without even realizing it? And we'll do it with our fellow brethren in the assembly without even realizing it. Well, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to get them back. That's not Christian. Long-suffering. And then bearing with one another in love. Putting up with one another's frailties. We're all twisted up. Every one of us is twisted. We, we all have a, a past that causes us to think wrong thinking and act in a wrong way. And we need to be patient with one another. Some of us come from the past that we come from. It's, it's hard to imagine that person could even be saved. But they are. But they maybe have a little bit longer road to go than others of us who maybe came to know the Lord when we were four years old. <laughs> We didn't have all that bad input for years that others get. So we need to be patient. That's part of what he's going to be describing all the way through verse 16. Forbearing with one another in love. This, this agape love in verse 2 continues some five times through this section. You get the idea he's focused on that? That the whole operation of us in community has got to be rooted and grounded in Christ's love for us and for our love for Christ and for the brethren. And John, in 1 John, would go so far as to say, you say, oh, I love Christ. I get at the Lord's Supper and I love Christ, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. That's what the Spirit of God says through the Apostle John to you and I. You're a liar. 
The truth's not in you. Because how can you say you love one whom you haven't seen, the Lord, but you won't love the one whom you do see, your brothers and sisters in Christ? You see how practical the Word of God is. It's easy to put on an act with words. Love is a verb with actions. Love is as love does. You can talk all you want to. Let's see what the actions show. Right? And then he summarizes that in verse 3. Endeavoring. That is a strong term of commitment. Focus. Concentration. I am endeavoring to do what? Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not establish it. I can't create the unity of the Spirit. God has to do that. And He promises to do that. But you and I are urged, besought, to endeavor to maintain it. Which implies that we can mess it up, like Brother was saying, over sometimes very small and trite things. Most of the assemblies that have been broken up have been over things that are not doctrinal. It wasn't error in doctrine. It was because somebody didn't do something in a certain way that somebody else wanted them to do it in. (laughs) Which is nothing but manipulation and control freak kind of ideas and all of that. That's not to be in the church. That's the world. But that's not in here. Let's be careful to be alert to those kind of things and help. There are some brethren that have certain personalities that just want to control other people. Let's check them. Let's not let that go on in a gracious way. He's going to say, speaking the truth in verse 15, speaking the truth, but speaking it in love, see. So it's important we speak the truth, but it's just as important to God that we speak it in love. (laughs) How we say it, as well as the fact that we do teach the truth. The bond of peace. And that leads him in verses 4 through 6 to establish the fact of the unity of the body of Christ. The unity. See, he, he said, keep the unity in verse 3. Well, what's that unity look like? Well, he says, there's one body. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I believe that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is, the moment a person is saved, they're baptized into the body, not water baptism. One baptism of the Holy Spirit, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There are seven items listed there. And they have an amazing corresponding related. The fourth one right in the middle is the Lord Himself. There's one Lord. There aren't multiple lords. There aren't multiple heads to the church. There's only one head. And it's Him. Jesus Christ. See. But He adds in verse 7. There's also diversity in this cohesive community founded in love. There's diversity. You say, oh, well, there you go. Oh, there goes the unity right out the window. You said diversity. How can we have diversity and still have unity? (laughs) Well, that's where the love comes in, see. 
Because Christian maturity is rooted in the fact that we recognize and appreciate and value the unique contribution. I'm not talking about financial now. I'm talking about spiritual. Spiritual contribution that each person makes to the entire body. As he'll say in verse 16, where he summarizes, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So if you're one of the parts of the body and you're not doing your part in supplying, you're hurting the body. You're hurting the local body and you're hurting the universal body of Christ. According to the effective working by which, there he says that word every again, Every part does its share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. There it is again. So growth of the body, Christian maturity, is the goal. That's what we are about. That doesn't happen automatically. That doesn't happen by taking your Bible and and putting it underneath your pillow when you sleep at night and hoping the Word of God comes into your head through the duck feathers. It doesn't work like that. It requires sweat, blood sometimes, hard work, planning, concentration, focus. We're going to talk in chapters. We have an enemy that's trying to block us every... Step of the way. He's trying to keep this from happening. He can't keep you from being saved once you're saved. But he can hinder your service once you're saved. He can hinder your usefulness. And therefore, he can hinder the growth of the body, the part you're supposed to be supplying to help the others. See? And it's amazing the things he can use to distract us. Little things. That's it. I, I'm, that's it. I'm not going to church for another two weeks. I, I just can't handle it. They, somebody said something wrong to me. Looked at me the wrong way. It, in the fellowship time, took my donut that I planned to take. That's it. I'm done. Little things, and we laugh. But you know what? That's what. That's how it is. It doesn't take much when you aren't walking in the spirit. See, and he's going to talk about that too, isn't he? But to me, this is beginning in verse 7 in the verses that follow. This is, this is a staggering part of the Word of God to me. I would never have thought to do what he does here. <laughs> would never have thought to do this. But Paul takes one verse, only one verse, out of one of the most important psalms in the Psalter. Psalm 68. How many of you ever studied Psalm 68? It's one of the great psalms of Messiah's victory in the Bible. (laughs) And it's interesting that it precedes Psalm 69. How many of you are familiar with Psalm 69? What's the major overriding theme of Psalm 69? The sufferings of Messiah, right? He quotes Psalm 69 from the cross. Now, it's interesting, just from a standpoint of structure, Psalm 22, which is also quoted from the cross, 
The, it divides into two main parts. The first part is his sufferings. The second part is his exaltation, beginning in verse 22. And that's the verse quoted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2. Psalm 22, 22. But in Psalm 68 and 69, both written by David and I believe put together by the Spirit of God, not by accident or by men, it's a little bit different than the order of us Westerners, right? Because in the Western mind, you know, we think, well, it's got to be logical, right? Building block approach, linear, that, you know, chronology. You've got to put this. If this happens first, it goes before this, right? Because we've got to follow chronology. Eastern mind doesn't think like that. Praise God for the diversity. And so in Psalm 68, he gives his exaltation. And then in Psalm 69, his humiliation. He reverses the order, see, that he does in Psalm 22 and in other places. It's the same kind of thing we see happen in Isaiah, where he'll give his exaltation and then his humiliation in that kind of order, which does what? It magnifies his humiliation. When you read Psalm 68, a psalm of tremendous victory, he's going to ascend the hill of Jerusalem and it won't be fulfilled. Psalm 68 will not be fulfilled until the Lord comes back the second time and ascends the hill of Jerusalem. That's the picture. There's a whole movement, a procession, a victory procession. It's a victory march. And he's at the head and, and, and he's leading captivity captive, see. Up the hill to the temple. And I'm told historically that the Jewish people under the Old Testament time would use Psalm 68 as called sometimes a royal psalm or a coronation psalm. Both would be, would be two different names for the same kind of category. There are certain psalms that were sung by the Jewish people when they installed every Davidic king in the southern kingdom. When the new king came in, they would have this, this ritual, if you will, where he would ascend the hill of Jerusalem, go up the old city. There were steps there going up from the lower part of the city where his palace was. And where the residences were, and up the hill to the temple, and the people are going up the hill, and they're singing this song. So turn with me to Psalm 68 for just a minute. <laughs> you kind of thought I was going to go there, I suspect. It is so important to see this, and I want you to see it with your own eye. I can only give you just a couple of things. I'd love to do the whole psalm. But the psalm really divides into two main divisions. The, uh, the first 19 verses would be the first division, and then verse 20 to the end would be the second. If you want to get more defined, there is an introduction. Verses 1 through 6 is an introduction and a conclusion in 33 to 35. So you could divide it into four sections, too, if you wanted to. But look how he begins in verse 1. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. <laughs> now, is that triumph? And this is a great psalm to read whenever you're depressed as a Christian. If you're going through a difficult time in your walk and you're depressed. There is such thing as spiritual depression, right? It's real. A lot of Christians suffering with it today in our churches because of the kinds of circumstances our world is in. This is a great psalm that will pull you right out of it. Because the Lord is saying, look, 
He says, let those who also hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. There's Psalm 1 again, isn't it? We were just singing that. The wicked will perish. The righteous will be glad and prosper. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. That supreme place. By His name, Yah. And rejoice before Him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. People that were isolated. Maybe their own family rejected them. Maybe they had other struggles and nobody, no friends, nobody cared about them. But he takes the solitary, the isolated, and he puts them in families. The family of God. Families like this. Wow. Can you sing to that? I can. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. That's Psalm 1 again. But the rebellious will dwell in a dry land, see. And then he begins in verse 7 to explain his deliverance when they went out of Egypt, the Exodus. And that will lead down in through verse 14. And then as he moves from verse 15 to 18, the kingdom. He'll move from the Exodus to the conquest when they moved into their inheritance under Joshua to the United Kingdom under David. And some rich metaphors that are used here. And in that section, in verse 18, this is the verse that Paul quotes in Ephesians 4. What's he saying? What's Paul trying to do here? Paul is saying that like when the Lord delivered the people of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought them into their inheritance that they might be a testimony for him. That's the history of the Old Testament, right? Like that, when Christ delivers you and me from bondage to sin and death, the law of sin and death, and brings us into the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and gives us an inheritance, and that inheritance begins with the sealing of the spirit in chapter 1 of Ephesians, but in chapter 4, spiritual gifts. He's given every one of us a spiritual gift to use to build up the body of Christ. And by Him giving spiritual gifts, it's a public demonstration here and to the world and to the angelic powers that want to watch. It's a public demonstration of His victory on the cross. Every time you and I use our spiritual gift for Christ... We are affirming before God, before the principalities and powers in the heavenlies, before anybody else in the world that wants to watch, and before our brothers and sisters in the assembly, we are affirming that Jesus Christ is alive and exalted. See? That's what I believe Paul is doing by quoting this one verse from Psalm 68. And when you don't use your spiritual gift... When you stay at home, when you stay checked out and not part of the fellowship of God's people, you are taking away from the glory of Jesus Christ that He deserves. Are you with me? 
Isn't it fair to say that? Sounds strong. But we are. Because only as we live for Christ and serve Him with the gift He's given to us to use where He puts us, only as we do that do we affirm the truth of His resurrection because the world can't see Him. And the world doesn't know that He's in heaven. And the world doesn't know that He's exalted. And the world doesn't know that it was a victory. They think He was defeated, that Pontius Pilate was the victor, and that the Romans were the victors. But no, the Bible says that God was the victor, and Jesus Christ was the victor. What do you believe? I don't mean just by your words. Yeah, you can give me a lot of theology, maybe. I mean by your actions. (laughs) What are you doing? To show that you really believe Jesus Christ is alive and exalted in the heavenlies. Only as you serve Him by the spiritual gift He's given you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, not the power of your flesh, will you affirm His ascension and exaltation. That's what He's saying. Beginning in verse 20 then, He moves on verses 1 through 19 are looking back at historical fact, right? Recorded in the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 20, he's looking ahead to the future second coming of Christ, which hasn't happened yet. So Paul is taking this one verse and applying it by the liberty the Holy Spirit has given him within its biblical context now. I'm not a progressive dispensationalist. I don't believe in what they call their complementary hermeneutic where they say the apostles can take a verse out of the Old Testament and make it say something different than what it said in the Old Testament. Very dangerous hermeneutic. Why? Because now we can make the Bible say anything we want to. It's no longer objective truth. It's subjective. You take away the objectivity from the truth, see? Now I've talked to Daryl Bach and some of the ones up there at Dallas about this complimentary hermeneutic, and they don't seem to see the danger of it. But it is dangerous. We talked about this in 2004. I know that was 10 years ago. It was in May, too, (laughs) when we did our Bible study method and hermeneutics. How many of you still have the handout? Remember the booklet we did? (laughs) So our God, verse 20, is the God of what? Deliverances. Our God is the God of deliverances. Salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong escapes from what? Death. Physical and spiritual. Especially spiritual death. And he goes on to talk about his victory when he comes back. They have seen your procession. Verse 24, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And the singers went before and the players on instruments followed after. This is going to really happen. Are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. Are you going to be there? Revelation 19 says that when he comes, his people, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to miss this for nothing. And I'm going to be singing, too. You're going to be singing, sister? I'm going to be singing. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, and so forth. Your God, verse 28, has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us because of your temple at Jerusalem. Kings will bring presents to you. That's what Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 5 talk about. Kings will bring presents. When? When he comes back. 
during the millennial kingdom. And Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that if they don't come and bring presents to him every year and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, if they don't come, there'll be no rain in their land, which means it'll be a desert. They'll starve. There won't be any crops. They will have to come. But a lot of them will come for the wrong motive, and that will be revealed after Satan is released again. But then the last few verses. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to spend this long in this psalm. Verse 33. To him who rides on. Remember what he began in the introduction? That he rides on the clouds in verse 4. Here he comes back to it in verse 33. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. And his strength is in the clouds, O God. You are more awesome than your holy places even. You, your person, is more awesome than the temple. More awesome than the holy of holies. You are. See, this is personal. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. What has Paul been talking about all the way through Ephesians? Strength of his might. Right? His power. So coming back to chapter 4, verse 7, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice that, each one of us. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended to the lower parts of the earth. I will add something here from an exegetical standpoint. Descending to the lower parts of the earth is his incarnation, becoming man. Philippians 2 tells us that. And this is affirmed in other scriptures in the Old Testament. This doesn't mean that he descended to Hades, like the so-called Apostles' Creed, which wasn't written by the apostles. It was written by those after the apostles had long gone, just like the Didache and other books that, that, that are not reliable. There's nothing in the scriptures that says that he went down to hell to brag about his victory. And that's not even a Christian kind of an attitude for our Lord to have. No, that, that's not. We had to recite that in, in the church that I grew up in. And it's false. But he did come to earth. He did become man. You could say it's a reference to his death and burial just as well in the lower parts of the earth. But he who descended is also the one who ascended Far above how much? All the heavens. Why? That he might fill all things. <laughs> you want to participate in that filling up of all things with him? That's what he's inviting us to do. By using our spiritual gifts in the assembly. By helping other people come to spiritual maturity. By in lowliness, in self-sacrifice, in patience and forbearance, helping others that maybe aren't growing at the same rate we are to wait for them. Like those two twin sisters. You remember the one recently in the news that in a track meet, one of them fell and hurt herself. And so her twin picked her up and carried her to the finish line. <laughs> What a picture of what Christianity is supposed to be about. I'm not sure they're Christian. I'm just saying what she demonstrated. This was her twin. She's not going to leave her laying on the ground. She gave up her place in the track meet. She said, you're going to come across the finish line with me. I'm not leaving you back there to be humiliated. 
That's what we're to be doing in a spiritual sense. Helping one another grow. Not leaving anybody behind. The Wounded Warrior Project. We don't leave anybody behind, right? We, We carry our wounded. We don't step on them and say, I'm getting way ahead of you. I'm going to keep growing. I'm going to leave you behind. No, we don't do that. We, went, we go and get them and help bring them along. That's what he's describing here all the way through verse 16. He himself, verse 11, gave some to be apostles and some prophets. He's already told us the apostles and prophets in chapter 2 are the foundation of the church. That's in 2.20. Very important verse in the New Testament. <clears throat> The apostles and prophets, these are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. They're the foundation of the church. The church isn't in the Old Testament. It can't be the Old Testament prophets. They were the New Testament prophets. That's how the Lord instructed the church before the Bible was completed. He had to instruct them and he used the gift of prophecy to do that. Direct revelation from God. The prophet always spoke by direct revelation. I disagree with John MacArthur and others that want to say preaching is the gift of prophecy. It is not because preaching is exhorting from the scriptures we already have. It's the gift of exhortation in Romans 12. And teaching is in Romans 12. It's another gift that's continuing. But the gift of prophecy ceased when the Bible was completed. Direct revelation. You would need a loose-leaf Bible to add pages if, if prophets were still in existence because that's new revelation from God. And God says His revelation is complete. He says that at the end of the book of Revelation, doesn't He? His revelation is complete. And he again addresses the apostles and prophets in in verse uh, 5 of chapter 3. And now he addresses it in chapter 4. The apostles and prophets. Apostle means sent one. So the apostles went out like missionaries to establish and plant churches like evangelists do. And the prophets stayed back and built up the, the Christians that were saved. In the truth of New Testament truth. The same truth we, <clears throat> we have in our New Testament. Not anything different than we have in our New Testament. What we have right here is what they taught them. But they didn't have a Bible to teach them from. So God had to give it to them directly. <clears throat> he can do that, you know. And he did that. It makes sense. God would have had to do it that way. But then, after them, God gave also evangelists and some pastor teachers. And the word and is not there. And the original between pastor and teacher is probably the same gift. Someone who's doing pastoral work, if they can't, don't have the gift of teaching, it's going to be hard to really do pastoral work. And if you have the gift of teaching, you don't have a sense of the pastoral shepherding need of the people. You're not going to be a very good teacher either. So pastor, teachers, and evangelists have replaced the apostles and prophets. The evangelists are the church planters. The pastor teachers are the ones that edify and build up those that are saved in those churches. This is God's plan. And He has given these people to the universal church. See? Not just to Ephesus. The apostles and prophets weren't just in Ephesus, right? They were in all the New Testament churches. And they were itinerant. The pastor teachers maybe stayed in one place like Paul did in Ephesus for two or three years or in Corinth for 18 months, and then he would move on to another place. They were itinerant. This idea of a, of a, uh, a pastor that stays in one place for 40 years in his entire ministry is not something we see in the Bible. 
It's not something we see in the Bible. It may be something that someone is called to do, but we don't see that here. What we see in the Bible is itinerant evangelists and pastor teachers that travel around and serve the entire body of Christ as they were led by the Holy Spirit. See, And what was the point of their work? Verse 12 to 16. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry. So who's going to be doing the ministry? The pastor? No, the saints. The saints are supposed to be doing it. Every one of them. Every part does its share, right? For the edifying of the body of Christ. That is spiritual edification, maturity, growing up into the things of the Lord. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. There's that unity again. And the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. <laughs> and none of us is there yet. We're all a work in progress, right? We're all part of that, and we participate in that. But that's what we gather. One of the reasons we gather. I've heard some people say that, well, we gather primarily for the Lord's Supper. That's a chief meeting of the church. John Reed put that book out, you know. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the Apostles' Doctrine and the Apostles' Fellowship is a teach. That's the first in the list in Acts 2.42 and the breaking of bread and prayers, right? Let's follow the Bible. That sounds really cute, and it sounds really cultic. And, and sectarian, but the Bible says the teaching of the Word of God was the first thing in the list in Acts 2.42. So the teaching of the Word of God and the Lord's Supper and the prayers and the fellowship all together, right? And they're all equally important. Not one of them. There's no hierarchy there in the Bible. So let's not put one there that's not there. And so he says, what are we trying to do? Bring everyone here to Christian maturity, to the fullness of Christ. To the fullness of Christ. Why? Well, because there's opposition. Verse 14. That we should no longer be children. That is, children in a spiritual sense. Lack of understanding. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Brian Wilson wrote a song at the Beach Boys years ago that I really liked the song back when I was a younger man. And, but the truth of it is, is still has application. I'm a cork on the ocean floating over the raging sea. How deep is the ocean? See, see I'm, just, I'm just tossed to and fro. I'm like a leaf on a windy day. Pretty soon I'll be blowing away. How long is the wind going to blow? I'm just blowing along, see? I'm a rock in a mountain, in a landslide, and I'm rolling down the mountainside. How deep's the valley? How long am I going to have to keep just going with the flow? <laughs> a leaf at the mercy of the wind. Is that your life? Is that mine, just to be a leaf at the mercy of the wind? Well, it shouldn't be. If you're growing into Christ's likeness, he says here, you're not going to be like that. You're not going to be tossed to and fro with every new wind of doctrine. Some new thing comes along and we jump on board and say, oh, yeah, we've got to do that. Then another new thing comes. Oh, we've got to do that. Another new. Oh, we've got to do that. See, that's what children do. Spiritual babies. Like one radio pastor says, he felt like a lot of his ministry was just burping babies all the time. He's burping these spiritual babies. They're never growing. 
And that's not the picture that he's presenting here, is it? But rather, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up, may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Who is that? Christ, growing up into him, becoming like him, learning to think like he thinks, learning to live like he lives. Does that interest you? Does that attract you? Does that cause you to want to participate in this? Or would you rather go do one of your phone apps? You know, I mean, what, what's it going to be? What, what is it that you want to make your life about, see? From whom the whole body joined and knit together. He's using the physical body as an example, Right? Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. And when he's talking about a joint in your body, what's he emphasizing? What do your joints do? They enable movement, right? This joint, the reason this joint is here, it enables movement, right? So he could have talked about a bone, but that doesn't enable movement. The joints do. So the joints, that's where all your movement happens. So what's he talking about? He's talking about active service, right? So it's amazing how the Holy Spirit guided him according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And then beginning in 4.17, let me just quickly give an outline because the rest of it really outlines very simply according to the word walk. The word walk, we heard that this morning at the Lord's Supper. We saw it in some of the songs we just sang. One of the things we learn in Bible study, you've heard of the law of first usage? Anybody heard of that? We studied that back ten years ago. The law of first usage in hermeneutics is that the way God, by the Spirit of God, uses the word, a particular word, first in the Bible, usually, almost always, is the way it's going to be intended to be used every time that word is used throughout the Bible. Okay? So, where is the word walk first used in the Bible? Brother read from it this morning. What verse was it, Aaron? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. And how is it used? They walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Does that mean they were just into aerobics? Adam and Eve, and they, they just, you know, do their, do their walking and do their, you know, swing those arms. That's what they're going to do. Is that, what the, is that what he's trying to communicate here? It means fellowship, right? It means agreement. It means they were together. They were going the same direction. And then it's used again just a few pages over in Genesis chapter 5 of Enoch. Remember what it said about Enoch? He walked with God, verse 24, and he was not, for God took him. Remember that? What does it mean that he walked with God? He was in fellowship with him. He agreed with him. He did those things which pleased the Lord. And then in Amos chapter 3, in verse 3, anybody remember how that verse goes? Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? And in the verse right before it, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Well, 
That's what Paul is using here. So when he uses the word walk, and really it occurs the first time in chapter 2, verse 2, in a negative way, we once walked according to the course of this world, and then in chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, that we should walk in these things that God has planned. And in chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of your calling. And now he's going to, in 4.17, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, build on that. First is walk in the new man. He's going to contrast the old man and the new man. And he's going to get concrete and not just theological about this, because if you're walking in the new man, in verse 25 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth. Put away lying. Him who is angry, stop being angry and let not the sun go down on that anger. You who used to have a problem with stealing, stop stealing. Why? Why can he say this to us? Because we have the Holy Spirit. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we couldn't obey these. That's why you can say, just say no to drugs to lost people all you want to. They can't say no to drugs. A lost person can't say no to sin. They don't have the Holy Spirit. But a saved person can and should, right? So you're going to talk about in 417 down through uh, chapter 4, verse 29, talking about walking the new man, and then beginning in 430 down through five, chapter, chapter 5, verse 2, to walk in love. And he's going to elaborate on that in very concrete, specific things. I'm giving this to you to, to write down and keep before you because this is what God is enabling us to do by His Spirit. And then in chapter 5, verse 3 through 14, walk in light. That's in verse 8. You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And that's going to be the issue primarily of holiness. He says, and so don't live like the Gentiles did. Rather, expose them. Have no fellowship. With the evil works of darkness, rather expose them. How? By your testimony. By your changed life. The fact that you're not like what you used to be. Walk as children of light. And then in chapter 5, verse 15 to 21, walk in wisdom. Which is to walk in the word of God. And that's where he gives the command in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit of God is not some sort of esoteric thing that you float along like a cloud. It is being filled with the Word of God. It's very concrete and real. And we know that because he tells us the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God in the next chapter. And so 5.15 down through 5.21, walk in wisdom. And then beginning in 5.22, concrete, specific examples in human relationships, the primary ones of life. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, be subject to your masters and serve them as you're serving the Lord Jesus Himself. Masters, be kind to your employees, if you will, your slaves, those that, that uh, are serving you. And then after that, walk, walk, walk. And then he gets down to chapter 6, verse 10, and he says, Now, there are certain times when you just need to stand. So he's using posture, isn't he? Something we can all relate to. He's not trying to make it hard. He's trying to make it where we can get it. He said there are certain times where you just need to take a stand and you don't turn and run because there's no armor for the back of you. All the armor's on the front. 
He says, finally, brethren, in verse 10 of chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of whose might? His. So you don't have to worry and say, well, I don't have any strength. I don't have enough wisdom here. I don't know enough theology. I don't know. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Then if you have Jesus and you have Jesus' Spirit, you have all you need. Strong in the Lord. And when the devil comes in with his schemes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That means he has a scheme that he's trying to trip you up. It's interesting to study Pilgrim's Progress on this. John Bunyan expands on some of these in Pilgrim's Progress. For we do not wrestle against people, flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. The demons that are at work in these people sometimes, or sometimes working around them. This is why we appreciate your prayer at soccer. It's interesting talking to Chris. You know, some of the things the devil uses. We've talked about it, right, brother? The things the devil... We had one night where a guy, right when the message time, we're out there for three hours almost, and there's nobody revving up their motor. But as soon as the message is about to start, somebody comes right up there, right by it, and starts revving his motor. Rom, rom, rom. Remember? Went on for three or four minutes. I just spoke louder. And prayed. And we've had people come in there try to distract. Some of them, I think, were demon-possessed. We've had all kinds of things. And, and Chris could elaborate on a lot more of them. But the Lord is the victor here. Psalm 68. We're on the winning side. Don't forget that. We're linked to the one who's won already. So there's no reason to get spiritually depressed or discouraged. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand... He's got fiery darts he's going to be shooting at you. I think that is evil thoughts that come into your mind. I can be sometimes studying the Bible and preparing a message and an evil, and I know it's got to be one of these fiery darts he's talking about. A thought will come in, an evil thought of something that occurred 30 years ago before I was saved. And I wasn't looking for that thought. I didn't, it, it just came out of nowhere. What are you going to do? You're going to succumb to it? Are you going to stand? I wish I could say I stand every time. But like you, I fail too, right? But the Lord is compassionate with us. So he, it's interesting to look at these seven pieces of the armor of God. Five of them are defensive. Two of them are offensive. And the offensive weapons, you know what the offensive weapons are? You should know those like this. I don't know how you've been able to stand all these years as Christians without knowing what your offensive weapons are. What are they? Come on. The Spirit. The Sword of the Spirit, which is... So, so quoting the Word of God to the devil, like the Lord Jesus does in the Mount of Temptation. If God does that, that's why the Lord Jesus did that. That's why that's quoted. He quoted Scripture to the devil. Now, the devil quoted Scripture back to him and twisted it, so you quote it accurately. That's the first one. What's the second one? That's why nobody comes on Wednesday night anymore in the prayer meeting. Prayer. 
You see, we live in a world where man can do it. Man, we've got the techno gadgets and, and we've got the techno knowledge and we can figure these things out and we don't need God. Sometimes we think. And so we don't think we need to pray. And beloved, if you want to know why the, the church testimony, not this one, but in general the church testimony in the world is so weak and insipid, I think largely is because Christians have gotten away from their dependence of God in prayer. Now we're not talking about ritual prayer. Like the unbelievers do. Because he says praying in the Spirit. That is praying in keeping with the will of God as we know it revealed in His Scripture. So there again... Coming to maturity in Christ, to a knowledge of the Word of God. That's important for us to know, to know how to pray. And down through verse 20, he completes that. Verse 18, praying, how often? Always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. <laughs> you see how big he's making it? Always, all, and for me, that utterance may be given, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel that I've just written to you in this letter, he said, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may, in it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. If you're a representative of the king, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. All authority has been given to him on heaven and in earth, right? Matthew 28. We represent him. We speak boldly for him as we ought to. Not timidly. Not ashamed of him or ashamed of his people. We speak boldly. If we're walking with him, see? And then he concludes the letter in verse 21 to 24. And as he concludes it, I'll conclude tonight. Appreciate your patience. As he concludes it in verse 24, Grace be with all those who love, primary word all the way through this letter, right? Who love our Lord Jesus Christ, his full title, in sincerity. Implying what? That some may have been saying they loved him, but they weren't genuine. They weren't authentic. They weren't sincere. And that is the problem in this Ephesian church. As we'll see in 1 Timothy, where Timothy is serving the Lord in Ephesus. And Paul writes to him and his concerns about the Ephesians. And then the Lord himself in Revelation 2 says, I'm going to take away your lampstand. If you don't repent, you've lost your first love. You're not sincere. He gives them credit for the fact they were doctrinal people, man. They had the doctrine. He says, and you expose those who bring in error and false doctrine. That's good. I give that to you. But you've lost your first love. And so I'm about to take away your lampstand. You know what happened to the church in Ephesus? I was talking to one of the couples this morning. There's no lampstand there anymore. There's no testimony for Christ in the modern Turkish city, Kushadasi. There's no 
testimony for Christ there at all. It's totally Islam. The lampstand got removed. Actually, the lampstand got removed, we think, in around the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. It's a serious matter. Could the lampstand here ever be removed? Sure could. Sure could. A matter like a relocation could cause it, couldn't it? If it's not handled properly, gently, like the elders are trying to do. Praise God for that. It's a great opportunity here. You're on the threshold of maybe wonderful things for the Lord, but go slow. Wait on the Lord. Be prayerful. <laughs> Love the Lord sincerely with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. See, It's interesting. Of the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, there in Revelation chapter 2, the one church that we would have figured is a goner is the church in Smyrna. He said, you're just small and you're being persecuted and, and you're about to be wiped out by the devil in persecution. And everybody says, well, Smyrna's not going to last. Ephesus, now that's the great church. The only place where there's a Christian testimony is in the modern Turkish city of Izmir, which is the Turkish name for Smyrna. And there's still been a Christian testimony there all these centuries since the time of the Apostle John. The other seven churches, gone. Genuineness. Authenticity. Reality. That's what the letter of Ephesians is about, isn't it? May the Lord help us. Examine our hearts. Maybe alter a few of our priorities. Get back on track if we've gotten off track. We serve a great God. We have a great purpose. Where His masterpiece, He wants to work through us to the blessing of others and us in the process. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord, for this assembly and for the testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, O Lord, that each one of us, as we yield and submit ourselves to the Word of God and the teaching of Your Spirit, May you revive us, encourage us, stir us up, fan the flame of our spiritual gift, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, and, and help us and guide us, O Lord, with dependence upon you and you alone in the testimony that you would have us bear for you. We're delighted and grateful to know you, to know eternal life. Help us to walk with you day by day rejoicing and singing along the heavenly road. May you be glorified. We thank you now. Be with us as we travel home in safety. In the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen.